So glad you're with us. Last week we began a series we're calling Relevant. It's a study through the 39 books of the Old Testament. It takes us about 35 weeks. And by the end, we'll either feel like we're wearing a tunic and a sandal, or we will have discovered what we call the full counsel of God's Word. Many people say that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and that the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Always remember the words of Jesus when, after the resurrection, he ministered, Luke 24, to the two men who were on the road to Emmaus. And he gave them this Bible study where he took them through the scriptures. The 39 books of the Old Testament is what Jesus read and showed himself on every page. The title of our series, Relevant, couldn't be more relevant than the words we just heard in Genesis chapter 3. Anybody have an idea that our world's messed up, upside down, crazy? can all trace it to Genesis 3. Genesis means beginnings or origins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It answers the big questions of life. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why am I here? Are we as human beings alone on this planet? And where do we go when we die? In fact, why do we die at all? One of the things we're going to see in Genesis, because it's a book of beginnings, is that we're going to see this kind of law of first reference. That the first time we see something in Genesis, in the Bible, it sets the tone for where we see it through the rest of the Bible. So if you know Genesis, you'll know the rest of your Bible. I'm probably going to say this every week, but we're only going to grow to the point where we invest our time into this study. Sunday morning is not enough. So we have a bookstore that's rich in resources. We have a, a landing page on our website where you can look at some of the things we're recommending. There's Bible studies that are popping up that'll walk you through a lot of what I'm teaching. So this might be your first opportunity to pick up a book, read the Bible, and guide yourself through. Last week, we looked at, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or what some would call the Big Bang. Now, the Big Bang wasn't a collision of planets because you have to ask, where did they come from? The Big Bang, and remember, nobody was there, was God saying, let there be light. God's booming voice creating something out of nothing. Uh, man knows now that there was a beginning. Einstein gave us that theory. And in six days, we see the doctrine of creation. It reveals a very good and loving God. After every day of creation, God said it was good. And God created a world of abundance. He cre created a world of variety and pleasure. And he created it for you and me. Because in Genesis 1.26, it says we were made in the image of God. Now, God didn't speak us into existence. He made us from the dust of the ground to show that we are separate from God. We are created beings. But the Bible declares we are the apple of his eye. I don't think until we get to heaven we'll understand what it means to be the imago Dei, to be made in the image of God. Certainly, God gave us creativity, the ability to think and ponder, to be curious. But I think it's much more than that. And I think we'll discover it through the ages. Creation teaches us that God is good. That God is love. God wants us to flourish just like we want our children to flourish. That God is king. Very important. He's the king of the universe. He put the laws into motion. He set things into motion, including how you and I would act. In Genesis 2.8, God gives Adam and Eve one command. Now, there may have been others, but we get one command. Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat, and then God gives the consequence. In the day of you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, why does God do this? Why does God give this command? It seems strange to us. 
Is God withholding something from the man and the woman? And why is it wrong to know good from evil? I mean, moral discernment's a good thing, right? We teach it to our children. Is God tempting the man? What's going on here? Well, in the New Testament, James tells us in chapter 1, verse 13, that let no one say when he's tempted that he's tempted by God. God doesn't tempt anyone. God can't be tempted. Rather, when we're tempted, it's because we are drawn away, get this, by our own desires. We're enticed. Then when desire is conceived, notice the, the trajectory, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. God said, in the day you sin, you will surely die. What God is introducing here in this command is he's giving Adam and Eve and all of us actually freedom, the freedom to choose. We are free moral agents with a free will. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And God gave us the power of choice, listen, even to choose against God. Love demands a choice. Now, for choice to really be choice, it has to be equal and fair, doesn't it? Like, imagine if God said, okay, you can eat of all the trees of the garden, and by the way, they taste like filet mignon, prime rib, porterhouse. But right here in the center of the garden, the tree of life, it tastes like liver. That wouldn't be a fair choice, would it? Now, someone's saying, Pastor Bob, you're wrong there because it wasn't until the fall that men began to eat meat. They ate vegetables before, yeah, but my argument is before the curse, vegetables didn't taste like vegetables. So I think when we get to heaven, that's what they'll taste like. I was out to dinner Friday night, and you know the waiter comes on and gives you kind of the specials? And one of the specials was a cauliflower steak. And the waiter's explaining it, and the person next to me said, uh, is this steak or is it cauliflower? Like, we get steak on the side? Like, the idea is, for choice to be choice, it has to be fair. And God gave Adam and Eve, and really gives every one of us on this lawn, the ability to choose, even against him. Remember what Satan said to God in the book of Job? He said, man, this is an indictment on the human race, man only serves you, Job only serves you because you've blessed him. You're Job's sugar daddy, of course he would serve you. And so God gives this choice. Now. Chapter 3 introduces us for the first time to a new character in Scripture, the serpent. And uh, here we go again. We have a problem early in the Bible, probably more, prob more problematic than God creating the world. We have a talking snake. And in the West, where people are educated, they're like, you got to be kidding. Do you really believe in talking snakes? Now, i got to tell you, I never struggle with this. Uh, as Pat said in the video, when I got saved, it was radical. I believe God's word was God's word. I had no proof. I just had a measure of faith. And I know people struggle with this, and sometimes you will, and academically you have to figure it out. That's okay. Uh, the word nakesh, the Hebrew word here for serpent, means a shining one. You might say, well, Pastor Bob, then why does it say serpent? Because when God proclaims the curse, he said, on your belly you shall crawl, and snakes crawl on their belly. But, but there was something shining, something alluring about this beast of the field that drew Eve to the tree that was forbidden. Now, who is the serpent? Where does he come from? In Revelation 12, 9, it says, war broke out in heaven. And Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and the angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was there a place found in heaven for them anymore. Remember what Jesus said? 
I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called Satan and the devil, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast with him. Now, Ezekiel gives a picture of Satan before the fall. In Ezekiel 28, he said, You were the model of perfection and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were anointed as the guarding cherub, for I ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in all your ways until iniquity was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. And I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you. O guardian cherub, you were among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud because of your beauty. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. And I threw you to the earth and I made you a spectacle before kings. Before the fall, Lucifer, it says, had the timbrels and the pipes within him. Many believe he was an archangel like Gabriel and Michael. Many believe he led worship in heaven. And I want to tell you this. Music is powerful. That's why we use it in our services. There was a Scottish preacher one time who said, let the politicians make their laws, but let us make music. The idea is that music can move a generation. And look what it's done in our culture. It's very powerful. When I became a Christian, I had over 500 albums. Everything from Herb Albert all the way to Iron Maiden. Wide variety of albums. And uh, one day a gentleman came over, and back then we had cassette tapes, and he gave me a cassette series called Satan's Influence in Rock and Roll. And I got to tell you, my wife and I are sitting in a basement apartment, and it scared the bejesus out of us. Backwards masking and all these lyrics that we had never seen. And he said, if anybody's sitting there and has a Led Zeppelin album, go and get it and look at the label. And I ran over and got a Zeppelin album, looked at the label, and there it was, Swan Song. And if any of you have ever seen us, it was Lucifer falling out of heaven. Began to study the backstory of how they were involved in satanic worship and so forth and so on. C.S. Lewis rightly said there's two equal and opposite errors that people make when it comes to the devil. One is to deny his existence. That's the West. That's the university. You've checked your mind at the door. How could there be a devil? And the other is to have an unhealthy interest in him, to see a demon behind every bush, and to think our battle is in the spiritual realm with Satan. Rather here we see how the tempter has acted from the garden all the way till this day on the lawn. Genesis chapter 3 is a classic exposition of what temptation and evil looks like. 60% of Americans still believe in a literal devil. If you don't, what is your explanation for evil in the world? If we're the product of evolution, why are we pitted against one another? Why, 50 years ago, did we put 6 million people in ovens? Why have there been so many pogroms and genocide in the world? It's unexplainable. But if you come to Genesis 3, it makes all the sense in the world. Verse 1 says, the serpent was more cunning than every beast of the field. The word is crafty. In the New Testament, old King James gives you like this, wiles or schemes of the devil. He's a master strategist. And listen, he only really has three schemes. And they all kind of revolve around lies. Jesus said when he lies, 
He lies from his innermost being. And generally where he lies, and Christians, listen up, is to the mind. Again, there's this unhealthy interest in the devil, especially in the extreme charismatic world. I was part of that. I got saved in that where there's manuals and you speak to the West and speak to the East and you go to war with Satan. And then I read in Jude that Michael, an archangel, when he came against Satan, this powerful archangel, God's warring angel, didn't bring a railing accusation but said, the Lord rebuke you. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve, notice, by his craftiness, your minds would be led astray from the simplicity and the purity that is devotion to Christ. Did everybody hear that? Following God is a very simple walk. Now, it's not an easy walk. We're swimming upstream. There's the world, flesh, and the devil. But serving God is a beautiful thing. To open your Bible and commune with God and to worship him is very simple. Jesus said, my burdens are not heavy, but they're light. Adam and Eve have one command. One command. Whenever I get to a place in life, and maybe you're at this place on the lawn, where my walk with God feels hard or difficult, where I feel a heavy burden, I have to do a check to understand if that comes from God or from the traditions of men. And many times it's the traditions of men. Early in our Christian walk, again, I got saved in the radical charismania, and then to get out of that, I got into radical legalism. And I was sitting under a teaching where, you know, we just acknowledged as young Christians, we weren't sure we were really saved, and really the leader of that community said we probably weren't. And I remember my wife and I going to a park saying, we can't do this. And my wife, who has been a beacon of optimism all our lives, was actually depressed. And we knew this couldn't be God. Because Jesus said, my burdens are easy and they're light. Think of the Ten Commandments. One of the commandments, God comes along in a world where Pharaoh made you work seven days a week and said, hey, take a day off. How's that command? Kick your feet up, take a day off. But by Jesus' day, the Pharisees had 480 rules on how to keep the Sabbath. See, that's religion, guys. And it will always give you this heavy burden. And that's why one of the freedoms we have in Jesus, one of the freedoms we have in Calvary, is that there's a simplicity to following God. The serpent goes on to say, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of the trees of the garden? And this is where Satan's lies come in. It's always the same lie to get us to doubt, not that God's word is God's word, but to doubt that the word of God is for our benefit. It's to doubt what we call the goodness of God, that God has our best intentions at hand. The seed of the temptation is if I obey God, then I'm gonna miss out on the good things of life where God won't come through for me. So somehow I have to lean on my own understanding. I can't trust God with my finances. i got to have a secret bank account where I can bail myself out because God intrinsically isn't good. James said this little seed begins, and then when it's grown, it brings forth death. Eve's response is God said that not only can we not eat of the trees of the garden, but that we can't even touch it. And she's adding to the word of God. She's making God a little more severe than he is, making the commandments a little more burdensome. 
And Satan's response is, you will not surely die. God knows in the day that you eat of it that you will be like God. And you'll know good from evil. You're missing out. You can be like God. There's something God's withheld. And the idea of being like God, why is that appealing? Because, because God as the king was the arbiter of good and evil, and now man wanted to take that for himself. How do you think that's worked out? How do you think it's working out in our culture? We don't even know what gender is anymore. We don't even know what male and female is anymore. You know, we're arguing, where does life begin? Does it begin in the womb? Does it begin when you come out of the body? We, we have all these cultural issues that's, that kind of circle around this idea. Instead of letting God be God, man is now the arbiter of good and evil. One final thing I want you to notice here is that how Eve is alone. And uh, I warn people about this all the time. I don't know where Adam is. He seems quite passive in this whole deal, as men sometimes are. And I'm sure it's okay for her to be out and about, but why does she never consult with Adam? Satan always wants to get you in the isolation. And once he gets you there, once you're enticed, it's game over. And again, he has three moves. Three moves in thousands of years. Uh, First John talks about this. He has the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of the life. That's his three moves. Now, everyone on the lawn is privy to one of them. Now, we all struggle with them all, but there's one that really gets you. For instance, the pride of life, Satan can rarely use it against me. Uh, all my trophies from basketball are in the attic. I don't even know where they are. I could care less about titles and how many people come to church. Doesn't even doesn't even phase me. Lust of the flesh, eh, not so much. Uh, so I buy Chips Ahoy on a Monday when I go food shopping. And I put them on the counter. And it drives my wife crazy. I eat two a night with a cup of coffee. Never anymore. She wants to eat the whole sleeve in one sitting. The lust of the flesh. But where Satan gets me, and you've got your own peculiarity, is the lust of the eyes. The lust of the, lust of the eyes isn't sexual. It can be. The lust of the eyes is when we see something we kind of fantasize that if I only had that, or if I was only in this situation, if I had that job, or if I did what Pastor Bob did, then my life would be worth living. Then my life would be perfect. We're all prone to one of these. We're prone to the lust of the eyes. We're prone to the lust of the flesh. For some of us, it's the pride of life. And Eve succumbed. She ate of the fruit and she gave it to Adam. Now, the beautiful thing is Jesus went through the same temptation. He was baptized in the Jordan by John. The Spirit of God falls. This is my son. I'm well pleased. Mountaintop experience. And the Bible says the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, drove Jesus into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and he was hungry. And Satan comes with these three temptations, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life. You know, worship me. I'll give you all these nations and the bread will fill you and so forth and so on. Satan changes the word of God, and Jesus defeats Satan. Not in the spiritual realm. He doesn't get the manual out on casting demons. Three times he says, and God said, and God said, and God said. Again, God's commandments are burdensome. They're light. Jesus to the woman caught in adultery, said, where are your accusers? She said, I have none. He said, neither do I accuse you. To a thief on the cross who had led a life of 
criminal activity. This day you'll be with me in paradise. Over and over again, we see it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Now, verse 6 says, she gave to her husband and they ate. Then verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. What Satan had promised, they had experienced. They had become like God. They knew good and evil. The result, however, was guilt and shame. This man who looked and said, oh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. They were naked and unashamed. Now they're ashamed. And listen, they make coverings. Now cover-up becomes the way of the universe. Have you ever marveled that when leaders or public figures get caught, whether in the church or out of the church, in politics or wherever, that cover-up is still the rule of the day? I mean, I'm just waiting for the first person to come clean and say, I did it and get it over with. Instead, you know, I never had sex with this woman. And we've been covering up ever since. And the image of God that man was made in was marred. And at a high level, evil enters the world. And it begins to spread. The Bible's first sin, oddly enough, is eating forbidden fruit, and then we jump to Cain and Abel to murder, and then Lamech introduces polygamy to the world. And in six short chapters, we get to a place where God says he was sorry that he made man, that every thought and every intention was only evil continuously. And what this sets up for us is what theologians call the depravity of man. You know, we love to look at little kids when they're born, and like B.F. Skinner said, to think they're a blank slate. That if we just give them the right education, they grow up in the right home, everything's going to turn out right. And yet the Bible says we come forth from the womb speaking lies. We have the corruption of Adam, what we call total depravity from the womb. The Bible teaches the opposite, that left to ourselves, we are predisposed to do what is wrong. Listen, when the, predi- the condition presents itself. Anybody work with toddlers? Anybody have a toddler? It's a case study, right? Take a toddler's toy away, what do they say? Mine. I've yet to meet a toddler say, oh, you took my toy, here's my blankie. Uh, You'll enjoy it. Let me give you something more. So my grandson's a toddler, and I was over at my daughter's house, and he did something wrong, and I corrected him. She said, Dad, you can't do that like you did with us. Today, it's all about positive parenting. And she had 52 cards on positive parenting, and she handed it to me. And uh, I'm looking through the cards. I set him down. We continued our conversation, and he's acting up again, and she picks him up, and she does what moms do to distract him. She gives him the cards. What do you think he did with the positive parenting cards? 52 pickup. <laughs> my daughter and my we just looked in each other's eyes, and we smiled. It's never changed. It starts early. There is this depravity. Now, verse 8 is one of the most saddest verses in the Bible. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The Garden of Eden wasn't where man was going to stay forever. The garden was almost like the temple. It was a place of worship. It was a place they met with God, actually, that God would walk with them in the time of the evening breezes. Now God comes along, and they hide. 
And the Lord God said to Adam, where are you? One commentator said that's not the voice of a policeman coming to arrest him. That's the voice of a wailing father. And it's the first question God asks in the Bible. Let me set you up for this for the rest of the Bible. Whenever God asks questions, he doesn't need information. You don't need to play hide and seek with God. He knows where you are. The Bible says if you go to heaven, he's there. If you go to the depths, he's there. You can't get away from God. When God asks questions, it's for our growing. And by God saying, where are you? He's inviting Adam and Eve into repentance. God's not angry with them. He's desiring. It's his kindness that draws them to repentance. And many of you out there may think, many of you may think, God's angry with me because I've done this or I've done that and I'm not worthy of God. Listen, it's his kindness. Everyone on this lawn was drawn because one day they heard of grace and God's kindness. And God asked, where are you? Because God is full of amazing grace. Adam's answer is, I heard you and I was afraid. First time fears in the Bible. As I look at the church today, God's people, I'm not even talking about the world, I've never seen fear at this level. Fear of a virus, fear of politics, fear of the economy, fear of government. We're afraid of each other. We're even afraid of the food and the water we're drinking. We have the best food and the water in the world. I look through the ages, what the church has endured, how Christians in Germany hid Jews, and people died on the stake for the Bible that's in your lap, and the church today, by and large, there's always a remnant, is stuck in fear. And the Bible says God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of courage and a sound mind, the ability to rise up and do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Now the result of Adam and Eve's sin is God pronounces a curse on the earth. He comes to Adam and Eve and he says, what have you done? Gives them a chance to repent. And the man said, it was the woman who you gave me who did it. Now blame enters the human race. Has that changed, right? Those of you who are married, still, still goes on, right? You know, at, at one time, this was woman. This is flesh of my flesh. Now it's you gave me this woman. Everything was great in the garden, God, before she came along. I loved all the animals. We had it all going here, and you gave me this woman. Then God said to the woman, you know, what have you done? And she said, the devil made me do it, right? And we've been blaming each other for a long, long time. And God puts a curse on the earth. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and conception, your pain and bring forth children. Your desire should be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. It's a very interesting verse. Your desire will be to rule over your husband, literally, and, and he will put you under. So for the history of the human race, because man is stronger, you know, women have been put down. And now we have an overcorrection where we want women to dominate. And remember, all this is under the curse, not God's grand plan. God's grand plan was oneness and unity and a man and a woman walking side by side. God said, I will put enmity or division between your seed, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, this is the Bible's first prophecy. God said in Isaiah, I am God, 
uh, and I can do what no one else can do. I could tell you things before they happen. There's over a thousand prophecies in the Bible, many of them fulfilled in Jesus Christ, many yet to be fulfilled in the second coming. But this is the Bible's first prophecy that it would be come through a seed of the woman that redemption would come. Now, this is strange because we talk about the seed of the man. And in the Bible, you see all these genealogies, and they're all man-driven because we know from anatomy that seed comes from a man. This would be the seed of a woman. It's very strange. Until we get to Luke chapter 2 where the angel tells Mary, you are highly favored, and you will bring forth a child, and you will call him Emmanuel, and he will save his people from his sins, and he will be the son of the Most High. Remember what Mary's question was? How can this be? I've never known a man. I've never had relations. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and that which will be born shall be called the Son of God. This would be the seed of the woman. And Satan would bruise his heel, he would put him on a cross, but Jesus would crush his head when he said, it is finished. God then makes coverings for the man and the woman. This is the first mention of animal sacrifice to put coverings on them. God had to slay an innocent animal sets up this whole idea of covering and redemption and then how God would accomplish what we couldn't do for ourselves. Now, I talked to you about the downward spiral of sin. It starts with Adam and Eve, but it doesn't end there. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. It said, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son, called his name Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now, this is beautiful because God promised there would be a seed of a woman, and now here is a promised seed. God, in his grace, is allowing them to have children. They're going to be fruitful and multiply. She bore again, called his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought forth an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry. And his countenance fell. Now, people always have questions here. Why would God respect one offering and not the other? And sometimes scholars come along and say, well, because God gave Adam revelation and there was covering in the garden, therefore, you know, Abel was a shepherd and it's the shedding of blood for the remission of sins and the covering and Cain brought the fruit of the ground. And in no way is any of that true because God honors all that we do. Everybody present here does something different. And whatever we bring to God, if we bring it with the right heart, is worship unto God. Why did God reject Cain and accept Abel's offering? Well, the key word there is Abel brought of the first fruits. First time that appears in the Bible. And you're going to see this all through Scripture, the idea of first fruits. What it means is that in that day where it was a world of scarcity, that I would bring God my best. You all heard of the word tithe? Most of you think it means 10%, and it does, but it means off the top. It means when, when I would bring in a yield of corn, I would give God the first 10%. I would give God the best. It was an act of faith, believing that he would supply the rest. And then the more I would give, the more he would resupply this fits what Jesus said, that you should give and men will give into your bosom. Running over, pressed down for good measure. It also said that he gave of the fat. The fat, you know, today we have lean cuisine, right? We eat non-fat things. In that day, fat was the best of the offering. 
still taste the best, by the way. And so what this sets up is there will always be that of what we give to God in devotion. David said, I'll give nothing to the Lord that hasn't cost me something. Jude talks about the way of Cain, which is appeasing God. Giving God just something because he's like the gods of the heathens. He's angry and we have to appease him. We can see by Cain's reaction that he's not godly. He was angry. For the first time, he's looking at another man. And for the first time, works now will be the measure of our faith. Lord God said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Why is God answering this question? You know the answer. Every time God answers a question, it's to draw us in one more time to repentance. He's giving a chance for Cain to repent. To say, I'm so sorry for my anger. You are a good and righteous God. But he doesn't repent. He doesn't come out of the shadows. God says, if you don't do well, if you don't repent, sin crouches at your door. Its desire is for you, but you shall not rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel's brother. It came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, and he murdered him. God asked another question. Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Class, why does God ask where Abel is? He's not angry with Cain. Again, he wants to draw Cain back into worship, back into this walk with God, back to the walk that Adam had and Eve had, a place of surrender, a place of forgiveness. But Cain hardens his heart, and he said, Am I my brother's keeper? And Jesus answered that question, that every human being is our brother, every single one. No matter what color or what creed, what they believe, Jesus said every single human being is our brother. We don't need fancy slogans and trends and virtual signaling today. It's all in Genesis 3. It's all from the lips of Jesus. We don't need to quote popular slogans. We need to quote what's in the Scripture that every man is our brother and that we need to trust God and that it's his kindness that will lead us to repentance. Cain says, this is more than I can bear. Again, God is not someone to trust. His burdens aren't easy, but they're hard. Guys, sin is the truly destructive force, not only in our world, but in each and every one of our lives. Evil didn't begin in a culture. It didn't begin in a city. It didn't begin in a conspiracy theory. It began in one human being's heart. And it spread like wildfire. It's crouching at our doors. It's why the world is upside down. It's why we are where we are today. And skeptics will laugh and ridicule, and it's all here in Genesis 3. And yet Jesus came to fix our world. He said, the Spirit of God is upon me to open blind eyes and deaf ears, to set those free that are oppressed. He healed lepers and he called sinners to repentance. Anybody been watching The Chosen? Anybody? Raise your hand. 
Oh my gosh, if you're not watching The Chosen, you're missing out. So I think most of you know I hate cheesy Christian movies, especially Jesus films. So my son, who probably has a hate higher than mine for them, put on our family texting uh, thread, hey, everybody needs to watch The Chosen. I'm like, why? Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. You hate cheesy movies. He said, Dad, trust me, this is amazing. Now, it's got a funky download. You got to go to the application, and I'm not really good with technology, so it is weird, and it's hard to get on the screen, but we did it one night. And we watched the first episode. I'm like, oh, this is okay. And by, C- by number two, I was hooked. And then episode number seven, I believe, is Jesus and Nicodemus. Oh, my gosh. It's almost how it had to happen. They give this giant backstory with Nicodemus, and finally this conversation with Jesus. You know what it is. And Jesus, in such a loving way, saying, unless a man be born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of spirit is spirit. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son of the world. Whoever believes in him would be saved. God didn't send his son of the world to condemn the world, but that all through him might come the repentance. Jesus didn't come to change the politics of Rome. He came to change the heart of man that was marred through Adam's sin that we would be wonderfully remade and reborn. He was the second Adam who was life-giving. And he came to set us free. I want everybody to close their eyes. And I want to do something that God has just really laid on my heart as we finish our time on the lawn. And I want us to join all the churches meeting right now on this day of repentance. And I just want you to talk to God. Uh, It could begin here, it could go on later, and I just want you to examine your heart, where you are in life with God, uh, the things that are going on in our culture. You know, 2020's been hard for all of us. We have this pent-up bitterness, and we're angry, and people are short with one another. And I want us to do what Cain could never do. I want us to come clean. I want us to come out of the shadows. Maybe some of you are involved in sin and you're covering up. And covering up's a hard thing. Covering your tracks, very difficult thing. And you know God's watching. Maybe you think he's angry, he's not. Maybe God's saying, this is the day. Come out of the shadows, come out of hiding. For Christians, a time of repentance. As a church, as a nation. Maybe if you've never accepted Christ, maybe this is your day. Maybe you can do what Cain and Adam and Eve could never do. Maybe you can hear the words of a loving Savior. Neither do I accuse you, but I've come that you might have life. Maybe you've never been baptized. Maybe you've waited every week on the lawn. This can be your day. You know, so many people have trouble getting started in life. Some people hate their jobs. And you ask them, "Uh, you hate your job, what would you rather do? Well, all my life I wanted to be a lawyer. Why don't you go back to law school? Well, that's gonna take three years and I'll be such and such age. So in other words, because of three years, you're gonna live the rest of your life hating your job in misery? Why don't you just get it over with? 
Why don't you just take a step today? Spiritually, it's the same thing. Doing the same thing over and over again is stupid. My prayer, this is your day. 